Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by the Executive Director of Brand New Congress, the Political Director of Vote Common Good and the author of the new book Running for Our Lives, a story of faith, politics and the common good, Rob Riasey. Rob Riasey, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Edward. So great to chat with you today. You're an evangelical pastor. You ran for Congress as a Republican in 2018. Most people, when they think of progressive candidates working to change politics, think of left-wing Democrats, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. Why are they so wrong to think that an evangelical pastor who ran as a Republican can't be a progressive candidate? And why did you feel so connected with other progressives? Yeah, thanks for thanks for that question. It's it's something that comes up a lot because uh, certainly um, my story um, a, as well as my campaign kind of confounds uh, a, a lot of people and what they think is normal. Uh, but for me, as a as a person of faith, um, my faith has um, brought me to the point of, and particularly because I. I think I take seriously the teachings of Jesus um, has brought me to the point of, of thinking that that progressive policy is the uh, the best way for our society, our culture, our world, for us as human beings to uh, to to live out some of those teachings. You know, Jesus <laughs> Jesus made sure that people had health coverage. You know, he kind of took responsibility for other people's health. Um, I think that's an important thing. Jesus looked out for the marginalized and uh, people that were that were left out I, I think that's important Jesus spoke truth to the uh, the uh, the rich and the powerful um, who were ignoring the the needs of others I think that's an important thing to do uh, and so you know my faith brought me to being a, uh, a progressive person and to having a progressive outlook in uh, in my politics um, and, and so those two things are really connected. For me, um, I'm a I'm a lifelong Republican who uh, who's been really kind of horrified at the direction that the Republican Party has gone over the years, and uh, and 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 that has really accelerated during the Trump administration, um, and uh, and so you know I ultimately had the, the the choice to make of whether or not I was going to stay in the Republican Party or or leave the Republican Party, and uh, and I decided to stay in and uh, and fight for a different future. Um, I think I think for for those of us that are progressives, it's it's good to have progressive voices in in, in as many different places as, as we possibly can. And uh, and so, you know, part of it was kind of a strategic thing running for Congress as a Republican. My district is a bright red district that is going to re to elect a uh, a Republican, um, you know, <laughs> uh you know, to Congress, um, you know, no matter what. And uh, and we thought kind of strategically in 2018 that my congressman had never had a primary challenge. So we decided to uh, to see if we could challenge him um, in the primary. Didn't go our way, but we learned a lot in the process and, and gave voice to uh, uh, a lot of people who felt like they were outsiders to the political process before that. You mentioned about how Jesus cared about things like health care and supporting others. One of the important lessons from the Bible is about helping those less fortunate than others. You look at proverbs like whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him 
for his deeds. You hear about Jesus helping beggars or the blind and so on. Why do you think the Republicans have ignored messages like that? Healthcare, like helping people on a minimum wage, yet claim to support the Christian faith, support the message that Jesus put forward. Well, I think, you know, I, I, it's a really it's a complicated thing and i think there's a, a lot of different answers to that i think there's a number of of christian leaders in america uh, members you know prominent members of the religious right who um who have have seen an opportunity to gain power and influence for themselves and uh and you know the, the thing that they care about is is that more than Kind of living out um, principles of faith that you know that seem you know kind of obvious. Um, I think so many religious voters in the United States, white evangelicals, white Catholics, um, and even a high percentage of, of white mainline voters in the United States um, have have been so convinced by religious leaders that abortion is the only issue that matters that um, uh, that they have. Just they they've kind of bought that 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 lie hook line and sinker, and uh, and so you know that that has allowed them to you know become very reliable Republican voters, um, so much so that someone like Donald Trump, who seems in so many ways antithetical to the teachings and the life of Jesus and the example of Jesus, um, you know he he said he would he said he would appoint pro life judges to the Supreme Court, and so. White evangelicals voted for him, you know, by 81 percent, the the highest percentage of uh, anybody's ever gotten. Uh, and so, like, that's that's deeply concerning to me. But I think I, I think there are I, I think we need to separate kind of those who have a stake in getting power and influence, and uh, and that's very alluring, from you know, kind of everyday Christians who are who are filling. Uh, churches who who you know really honestly sincerely believe that abortion is like this the greatest genocide in human history and are and you know think that they need to vote to uh, to to elect people who will who will eliminate it I, I I think they're sadly mistaken but I but I think they're well intentioned but really misguided. One of the things you touched upon a few months ago was evangelicals supporting. Republicans voting that way, uh, particularly supporting Donald Trump. And you recently penned an editorial in Time magazine stating that Donald Trump, quote, doesn't live by nor ostensibly even aspires to the values of most of these evangelical voters. When you've got Donald Trump, a man that's had numerous extramarital affairs, has had several divorces and several wives, overlapping relationships there. Why are evangelicals looking at this man who preaches none of what they believe in and saying, that's our guy, that's who we're going to back? I, I, it, it, I, I don't know. It's dumbfounding. I, uh, I, this is, I mean, this is the conversation I have with, with my own mother, who, who I thought raised me a certain way. And then, you know, when I found out how she was voting, I was you know, kind of absolutely horrified. And, and the, I mean, like, and, you know, so the conversation is about, okay, why would you support someone like this? And, and, 
you know, the the answer is abortion is the only issue that matters um, that, you know, will will. And, you know, and frankly, this is a, a bit of what Democrats did with Bill Clinton back in 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 the 90s. They're willing to say, listen, we will we will turn a blind eye to per issues of personal character because we agree with the public policy in this particular area. And there was a there was a Democrats made the argument in 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 the 90s that that Clinton's public morality was more important than his personal morality. And and Republicans rejected that in the 90s and said no 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 it can't be. But now that has flip-flopped. Um, Republicans or evangelical Christians are now saying his public morality, his in particular for them, his stand on abortion, is more important than his personal morality. Um, I I think I think Donald Trump's personal morality and his public morality is uh, is problematic and and should be a reason why evangelical Christians and frankly everybody ought to oppose it. This is why you've joined Vote Common Good. As I mentioned in the introduction, you're the political director of Vote Common Good. What's that organization doing when it comes to evangelical voters and, and getting out there and campaigning in this election? Yeah, Vote Common Good is really focused on urging religiously motivated voters, white evangelicals, white Catholics in particular, to resist and stop the Trump administration. Uh, in 2018, we did a, uh, a bus tour that we started in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and ended up in Fresno, California. And in 36 days, we went to 31 different congressional districts and held rallies with, with congressional candidates urging uh, religiously motivated voters to help flip Congress, uh, flip the House of Representatives as a, uh, as a means of resisting the Trump administration. In 2020, we're focused on encouraging religiously motivated voters to um, be on the front lines of, uh, of, of stopping the reelection of Donald Trump. And so we are in the middle right now of another bus tour. We're going to all 50 states between January 12th and April 5th. We're going to all 50 states and, uh, and holding rallies, encouraging religiously motivated voters to, uh, uh, to, to essentially vote for Democrats and uh, and then uh, after this kind of first bus tour, we're going to be focusing on swing states and Senate races and uh, and having a presence in those states. Incur you know, we'll, we'll be on the bus driving around, holding rallies and events, um, encouraging uh, uh, religiously motivated voters to uh, uh, to be engaged in this in this uh, election. Because so Donald Trump got 81 percent of white evangelicals. Uh, got a very, got the majority of white Catholics, got the majority of white mainliners. Basically, any any identifying Christian group in the United States, the majority of that group voted for Donald Trump in uh, in 2016. We you know in, we don't have any like we don't have any illusions of grandeur that we're going to be able to you know change the 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 diehard Trump voter. Our executive director Doug Paget likes to say. He, said, he likes to say, if Donald Trump doesn't convince you not to vote for Donald Trump, we're not going to be able to do it, which I, which I think is a great line. Uh, but, uh, but what we think is that there is a percentage of Christians, uh, of religiously motivated voters, who, who are, are questioning the vote that they cast in, in, uh, in 2016, are looking for an alternative, are 
are hoping that they're not alone. And what we're trying to do is create some space for them to, 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 um, to wake up to the reality that they're not alone, to begin to speak up in their own, in their own circles and, and ultimately to stand up and, and cast their vote for someone other than Donald Trump. And if we think that if we could peel off five, seven, 10, 15 percent of, of white evangelical voters, there's absolutely no way that Donald Trump will get reelected. He, he simply that just that um, that percentage will ensure the fact that he will lose the election in, in 2020. Um, and so that's that's what we're working on doing. Making sure that people know that they're not alone, working together to teach people about different views or convince them in a different way to fight for a better America is something that is a key theme in your new book, exploring how ordinary citizens can work for the common good to change American politics, create a government that's by and for the people. As I mentioned in the introduction, Running for Our Lives, a story of faith, politics and the common good is available now. Brand new book recently released. As a former congressional candidate who challenged one of the most powerful Republican incumbents in Congress, what did your experience of running for office teach you about taking on the establishment, about how if Americans come together and they work for the common good, they can make a difference, they can change things? I learned so much throughout the course of the campaign, and, and that's uh, what the book is about. It's the story of the campaign and then and lessons learned along the way. I, I would say one of the one of the big things I, I learned is that it, it if you had asked me before I, I ran for Congress um, where campaign finance reform or money in politics would rank on issues that were important to me, um, I, I sincerely doubt it would have even made the top ten. In, on my list. It just wasn't an issue. And I, and I was a really politically engaged person who's paid attention. And it, it just was not an issue that I cared about. It was not an issue I thought was tremendously important. Uh, I can tell you now, after having run uh, for Congress, uh, money in politics and campaign finance reform is to me the number one issue, um, is the number one problem in our system in the United States. And is the the disease that everything else is a symptom of. Um, we talk about healthcare, we talk about immigration, we talk about common sense gun reform, we talk about uh, uh, fighting poverty and criminal justice reform and all of these different things um, that are tremendously important issues and things that we absolutely have to address as a country. Um, we're not gonna be able to do that until we, until we change how we finance our elections in the United States, because as long as we allow um, special interest groups, uh, corporate PACs, corporate donors and their lobbyists to to funnel so much money into our system, um, our our elected leaders are essentially their loyalty lies with the people who fund their campaigns. And uh, and so when their campaigns are funded by for profit prison companies and pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and the NRA and, you know, and on down the list, um, no wonder we can't get the biggest problems we face as a country solved because the loyalty of our leaders is not with us, is not with we the people, it's with their donors. And I had I had no idea just how impactful 
money was in the political system until I, I got involved. And it played out really personally for me here in Arkansas. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I, I ran for Congress here in Arkansas, and Arkansas has the highest filing fee of any state in the United States. So in the U.S., um, every state gets – like when you get your name on the ballot, every state gets to set whatever the parameters are for doing that. And some states like oh, – if you run for Congress in Ohio, you have to collect 50 signatures to be on the ballot. That's it. Um, most states have a, a combination of either collecting signatures or um, or paying a fee. Usually it's 1% of the salary of the job that you're going for. Um, there's three states in the country that um, that allow the political parties themselves to to determine how you get on the ballot. Arkansas is one of those states, and as a result, um, the Republican Party of Arkansas sets the filing fee, the ballot access fee here in our state, to have your name appear on the ballot at fifteen thousand um, dollars. Next highest is Florida, which is about ten thousand, and then Georgia, which is five thousand. Most states it's seventeen hundred dollars, but here in Arkansas it's fifteen thousand dollars just to have your name on the ballot. Um, now, if you're if you take millions of dollars in you know in, in corporate money and have you know PAC money and you know have all of that, you know that's no big deal. If you're a regular person who wants to run for office um, and is raising money, you know. Twenty-seven dollars at a time, at a time, you know, from from supporters around the country, uh, you know, paying that fee, you know, takes a huge is a huge portion of your budget. So it's just one of the examples of the ways that, like, the the system is set up to make it harder for regular people to run, to protect incumbents, and particularly those incumbents who take corporate money. And it's it's the biggest problem we have in our system. You said there that it cost fifteen thousand dollars to file to run in Arkansas. Just for context for people listening, the median household income in Arkansas is forty-seven thousand dollars. So yeah. the average person doesn't have anywhere near the ability to no. pay for that without people giving them the cash. Exactly, and and it what it does is it it makes it it nearly impossible for regular people to to run for office uh, it 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 protects the party establishments protects incumbents and and keeps you know regular people out of the process and and it's something that that absolutely has to be changed it's something that's a little, maybe on my radar maybe in maybe in 2022 I'll, I'll I, I I've got this kind of vague notion that I want to have a, a constitutional amendment on the ballot here in Arkansas to, to change how we fund our system. Uh, because here in Arkansas, the crazy thing is, is that money then gets paid to the political parties. Most most states, uh, it gets paid to the secretary of state's office. It goes into the state coffers here in Arkansas. It gets paid to the political parties. So it's a revenue stream for the Republican Party and the Democratic Party in, in our state. Uh, it's just it's just ridiculous. That's why one of the things that you preached in your work across all the organizations in the in the book that you've written and in your campaign for Congress. You were praised for this actually by Angela Denker, the author of Red State Christians, Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump, who stated that your stories prove some people do still get into politics hoping to make things better for someone other than themselves, working for the working people, looking at 
those individuals who couldn't hope to get even close to running for office because they have nowhere near the funds, nowhere near the organisation to be able to do that because of the way the system's set up. Is this why you feel so passionate about replacing people in Congress with people who are representative of the wider American population? So whether that be scientists or teachers or union workers, people working two jobs, healthcare professionals, uh, as well as a range of diverse individuals, LGBT individuals, Latinos, African-Americans, community organizers, etc. People who really look like the America that they yes. represent because Congress right now is, as we over here in Britain would say, male, pale and stale. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and you know, that that's why I'm super excited about the work that I do with with brand new Congress, because that's what we're focused on is to an elect uh, elect a Congress that looks like America. Uh, I mean, what a crazy idea. I, I mean, the actual job title of a congressperson is representative. Like that's that's the like that's their actual job title. It's what they're supposed to do. But we have we have a Congress that is not representative of our country. It's not representative of the people in our country. It's representative of their big donors. And uh, and that's why, you know, we're we're working so hard at Brand New Congress to change that. Brand New Congress is calling for this 21st century Bill of Rights, isn't it? Where yeah. looking at the way that the current Bill of Rights is failing and falling short of securing the full scope of unalienable rights for all people. So that's what Brand New Congress is really seeking to achieve here, creating a fairer, more equal society as America was set up originally to do. Yeah, precisely. And and we I really love our, our, our 21st century Bill of Rights and how how it lays out a, a shared set of values and a shared vision amongst our candidates of of the, the country that, that we want to be that that more perfect union that we're that we're striving for. Um, we think that it's that it's time for really significant overhaul in in so many different systems that have that have been um, hijacked and utilized by um, by big corporations and the and and their lobbyists and their special interest groups and in the process have have locked regular Americans out of the system and and, have, and in fact have been detrimental to them. We're trying to 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 bring by electing a brand new Congress, bringing major overhaul to the country. One area where it's really important to overhaul what's currently going on in America is the issue of employment. It's something that features in this 21st century Bill of Rights that brand new Congress is pushing. Quote, every American who needs a job has a right to stable and sustainable employment with a living wage. In 2010, the federal minimum wage across America was $7.25 per hour. By 2019, while nearly half of U.S. states have raised their minimum wage, there are still states across America that have a federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. In Arkansas, it's $8.50. Yeah, that is correct. In, in Arkansas, we, we passed a, a ballot initiative in 2018 um, that will raise the minimum wage here in our state to $11 per hour over uh, a number of years, which is really interesting when you think about Arkansas as a state that Donald Trump won with over 60 percent, all all four members of 
of our congressional delegation um, in the House of Representatives are Republicans. Both of our senators are Republicans. Our governor is a Republican. Our lieutenant governor is a Republican. Both of our, our, our houses here in Arkansas are, are dominated by Republicans. This is a bright red state that voted to increase the minimum wage, uh, which is something that all of our Republican leadership opposed. And, and what it shows is that when when we get to like the really important issues that matter to people that will make a difference in their lives, uh, and 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 we can, if if we can break through the the noise and the distractions put out there by by party establishments, um, these are winning issues for for candidates who are willing to run on them. Um, you know. In, regardless of the area, whether it's a blue state or a red state or a blue district or a red district or a purple district, like these are winning issues and, and certainly raising the minimum wage and making sure that people have jobs and jobs that can support them and their families um, like that, like those are winning issues. While these are winning issues, while these have clear popularity in blue states and red states and purple states, that's not what the current Republican establishment is doing. As you, as you mentioned there, not just in Arkansas or across America, we're seeing Republicans oppose measures such as minimum wage issues. Beyond that, actually, they're, they're doing more because corporations aren't just allowed to pocket millions in profits while their workers struggle to make ends meet. Republicans are actually rewarding that approach by giving these corporations tax cuts that lines their pockets. Why are Republicans taking that approach? Why are they, when this is a winning issue, refusing to do what is clearly the right option for their constituents? <laughs> this, this, I, this is, again, one of those things, these things that dumbfounds me. I, it, but I, I think, I think it, again, it goes back to the, the, the question of how we fund our elections. Our, our leaders are bought and paid for. Uh, by their by their corporate donors, their loyalty isn't with us. I mean, Medicare for all is the most popular health plan, you know, in the United States, but we can't get it passed. Uh, there's, you know, polling that came out um, in uh, in uh, in in 2018 that 57 percent of Republican voters supported Medicare for all. Um, you know, it, it, the majority of Republican voters even support it, um, but. But our leaders are, and, and this is true in both parties, our leaders are bought and paid for by corporate interests, and their loyalty is not with we the people. Their loyalty is with, uh, is with their donors. I mean, and we, I mean, we could look at this, uh, so many issues. Uh, common sense gun reform. Uh, there's you know, it's like 80 and 90 percent of, of, of Americans in the United States think that we need to have some kind of um, – greater background checks before people purchase handguns but and, and purchase firearms but like we but we can't get there because our because our 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 elected leaders lack the political courage to take a stand and um their uh, their loyalty isn't with us and that's as you mentioned earlier why you're looking to kick big money out of politics but for most people as you yourself experienced before looking at this issue, they don't realize how much of an impact big money has and the control that it has when it comes to whether it's gun control, healthcare policies, etc., etc. When there are so many politicians in Congress, 
that are controlled by big corporations and big money donors. Is there really any hope? How can we be optimistic about addressing this issue? Yeah, I got I got three letters for you. AOC. <laughs> That's <laughs> like when you when you ask if we should have any hope, we absolutely the hope that we should have is 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 seen in in uh, Alexandria, her campaign for Congress and uh, and and how she has been a profound leader in Washington, D.C. Uh, you know, I. I, I had the opportunity to. I was recruited to, to run for Congress in 20, uh, early 2017, uh, by brand new Congress. My phone rang one day, and they said, "Hey, would you be interested in running for Congress?" And uh, and that kind of you know <laughs> propelled me on a journey I never imagined I would go on. And and I I I went to you know quote unquote Congress camp, which is what which my wife lovingly dubbed it. Uh, which was a, a couple of days of, of training with brand new Congress and and in in Alexandria uh, was there uh, and me and and Sarah Smith in, in in Seattle and Michael Hepburn from Florida and Paula Jean Swearingen from West Virginia. It was the five of us along with brand new Congress staff and and spent a couple of days training and learning and 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 strategizing together. And you know I I Alex and I sat next to each other. At a, at a table in Knoxville, Tennessee, at the end of Congress camp and filled out the paperwork to begin our campaigns for Congress. Uh, you know, so when I, when I look at, at what, what Alexandria has been able to do, how, how she won, and, uh, and, and then how she has been such a profound leader, like that's what gives us hope. And, and you know, what we're working on now, and I, I, I tell people a lot, I get, every, I get up every day, and like the thing I'm thinking about is how can I get Alex as much help as possible in Washington D.C. That's what we're trying to do with brand new Congress. We're not trying to, <laughs> I like to say too, like we're not trying to elect the next AOC. Uh, what I'm trying to do now is elect the next Michaela Wilkes, the next Betsy Sweet, the next Paula Jean Swearingen, the next uh, Jamal Bowman, the next Tomas Ramos, the next Anthony Clark. You know, could the next Cory Bush, because each of these amazing candidates that we have at Brand New Congress is is their own individual with their own perspective and brings so much to the table. It's not like we're trying to just replicate, you know, who Alex is. Uh, but what we're trying to do is, is get her as much help as possible in D.C. We've seen what one unbought, inspiring, progressive, bold leader can do and the difference they can make and how they can shift the whole national agenda, the whole conversation of our politics can be shaped by leaders like that. Imagine if we had 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 um, along with Alexandria and, and what a difference it would make. And I think that's the message that people listening to this podcast going into 2020, looking at these elections these primaries and the candidates that they've got out there really want to hear because you talked about some of the candidates running and a lot of people between 2016 and 2018 and since 2018 have felt disheartened watching decisions made by politicians in Congress. But that motivation and that optimism that people like yourself are pushing out there is really what they need to remember and hold on to there, because while Susan Collins might have acted and put party above country, while Lisa Murkowski is out there putting party above country, while Cory Gardner is out there putting party above country, 
looking at the Senate in particular and vulnerable Republican seats, there are these progressive voices out there challenging them, going, I can take on you. I don't need this big money donor. I'm working for my constituents. So that's really where your organization is, is focusing and what you've got in mind coming in 2020. And that's what you'd love voters to bear in mind. They have another option that yes. the hope isn't lost here. Yes. So absolutely. And, you know, there's I think there's a presidential candidate, um, you know, who this past week has kind of gotten in a little bit of a kerfuffle uh, because, you know, she is now kind of um, accepting the, the help of a super PAC after she said that she wouldn't accept the help of super PACs. And, and it's been a little bit of a kind of a, a firestorm you know, politically. And, 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 and her, her reasoning is, well, this is, this is, you know, everybody's doing it. This is the game that I have to play. And if everybody else will swear off super PACs, then I will too. And, and, you know, I, I understand that, but that's not leadership. Um, leadership is when, when you're willing to say, listen, the game is rigged, but I'm going to play it anyways. And I'm going to play it so well and, and so creatively that I'm going to that I'm going to win anyways. And that's what we're trying to do with brand new Congress. The game is rigged towards people who take PAC money, corporate PAC money. And and we're saying, listen, we're, we're like that is a corrupting system. We're going to play the game, but we're not going to we're not going to play by those rules. And we're going to play the game and win so that when we win, we can change the rules to be much more just and generous for the people of our country. And uh, and that's why, like our candidates all across the country, we've got 37 of them right now and, and we're going to be endorsing a few more. Um, and, you know, so, you know, 40 or so candidates around the United States, you know, they these are these are regular people who are running for office who are willing to to put their lives on hold and, and put their, put themselves in the, in the, uh, in, in the middle of, of what is a tremendously difficult and life-changing experience, but they're, and, and, and they're, they're willing to do it in a, in a way where they know they're hamstrung because they're not taking corporate PAC money. Um, but, but they're doing it because they absolutely believe that like the future of the country depends on us electing people like this. And, and, you know, it's it it gives me so much hope. And, and, it, and it's so easy sometimes to think, well, we've got to play by these rules until until we can change them. And, you know, yeah, we need to we need to have campaign finance reform and and Citizens United needs to be ended. Absolutely. But you know what? The American people don't have to wait for those laws to get passed to elect people who don't take corporate PAC money. Like we could send the message now that the people we vote for are people who will not be bought and paid for by corporate interests. We, the people, have the power to to send that message and to make it so that, you know, um, taking corporate PAC money, admitting that you take corporate PAC money is like, you know, it used to be like admitting that you smoked marijuana in college. It was like, you know, it used to be that used to be, well, you know, kiss your career, you know, your political career is over. Um you know, like that used to be the case. And and we could we the people could change the whole system if we if we elected people who don't take corporate PAC money, people like this. And we've got those options now all over the country. People say, oh, well, AOC did it. That was a one off. But it's not the case because you look at Bernie Sanders, who's leading in the Democratic presidential yeah. primary who's rejecting those 
PAC monies and corporate donors. You look at individuals like Representative Rokana over in California, rejected PAC money. So it is possible for candidates to, to really do it and to yeah. challenge that out there. Yeah. What would it take, do you think, to eliminate corporate PAC monies? Would it have to be a constitutional amendment? Would it be just a simple law that's passed if Democrats get to control the House, the Senate and the White House? What would it really take to get rid of this and ensure that this is dealt with? Because we can talk about various issues like healthcare and education and housing all day, but until this is tackled, None of those issues are going to ever be truly solved. Yeah. Ultimately, um, you know, because because Citizens United was a Supreme Court decision, ultimately there's going to be there's going to need to be a law that gets written that challenges Citizens United that then gets challenged in court and makes its way through the system and have the Supreme Court make it, you know, to either revisit that and and overturn the decisions that they've made in the past or or confirm them. Um, and. And then if that happens, then, you know, a constitutional amendment would, you know, would be the other remedy. Those are really long and drawn out, drastic options. Um, and, and I think, you know, we absolutely need to move forward on all of them. Uh, but again, we, but we don't have to we don't have to wait for that. You know, we we can we can we can within the system as it exists we can elect people who don't take corporate PAC money if if we as voters realize how important this issue is and and refuse to vote for people who take corporate PAC money like that that we could we could change the narrative we could change the game and I I think that's what we need to do while our <laughs> but can we expect that our the leaders who benefit from the system are gonna are gonna you know write the laws necessary? They're not. Um, you know, there's organizations out there who who like to talk about campaign finance reform and uh, and think we need to you know uh, change Citizens United and, and and bring that to a to an end. And and they endorse people who take corporate PAC money. It's you know, it's it's it, like it's so uh, it's so ridiculous at times. Um, but you know, we do have options, and those options are to to support, to find, and support those candidates who 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 recognize the importance of uh, of not taking corporate PAC money, and then supporting them, uh, donating to them, and volunteering for them, and and organizing on their behalf. You know. Alex used to say, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez used to say during her, her 2018 campaign, she said, she used to say, they can outspend us, but they can't outorganize us. And, and so it's tremendously important for people to, to volunteer and to help out with groups like Brand New Congress and, and what we're trying to do uh, and, and the candidates that we're supporting because they're the ones that are going to make a difference. Yes, those laws need to be changed and those, those laws need to be passed and all of that process needs to happen, but we don't have to wait for that. We can, we can make a difference now by electing people like brand new Congress supports who recognize the importance of this issue. You talked there about getting people out there, motivating people to vote. There's really only one way to ensure that the people who deserve to be in Congress that represent America and the values that Americans truly represent and believe in in November. And that's a four word slogan that people can remember. 
go out and vote. Absolutely. To round us up on this interview, we've talked about people going out there and voting. We've talked about how your organizations, Vote Common Good, Brand New Congress, are working towards that and the lessons that you've put out there in your book, um, Running for Our Lives, A Story of Faith, Politics and the Common Good. To round out this interview, how can people get involved in those organizations, campaign, volunteer, donate, support the candidates that you're pushing and putting forward to, to really make that difference on stage in November? Yeah. And so there's there's two places I would encourage people to go. The first of all would be to brandnewcongress.org. It's brandnewcongress.org. There you can see a list of the candidates that we've endorsed and get links to their websites where you can volunteer and donate to them. You can also donate to Brand New Congress to help us, um, you know, keep going um, with the work that we do in supporting those candidates and helping them get elected. Um, and everything we've got going on is is there on brandnewcongress.org. You can also follow us on social on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram. Um, VoteCommonGood.com is the other place people can visit, and uh, and that to learn about the work that uh, Vote Common Good is doing. It's VoteCommonGood.com, and uh, there you can especially see where where the bus is at because we literally ride around the country on a bus, and uh, and uh, it actually the bus the 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 person who used the bus before us. Uh, was Weird Al Yankovic, and now <laughs> now it's our bus, and, uh, and so it's this crazy thing, uh, and so you can see where we're going to be, and uh, would love to have people come out to our events and uh, and to, to to participate with us. You can see where the bus is and what's happening with the tour uh, there, and you can also find Vote Common Good on Facebook and and Twitter and Instagram as well. Rob Ricey, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Edward.